Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right, are we live? We're live. We're live in the show. So um, none of this is trading advice. Of course, let's do the, the regular thing. Anything right. here. On use, this spot, on this you know, YouTube use, channel. Use your big noggins. Yeah. We're not giving any advice. We're going to chat about some stuff. It, uh, you know, you talk to your advisor, do your homework, and um, nothing that we say is real. With it is said, for entertainment purposes only. Leverages I'm, I'm, a, I'm officially on the Dave Portnoy train, by the way. Is that is that his, the, the right oh, first name? Yes. Who, who's the other Portnoy that you guys play? Brian. Uh, Brian. They're cousins, the, right? They're related. No, they're not. <laughs> Brian's gone to <laughs> great painstaking effects to uh, to to. I don't know why. I mean, from that, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's. I, I think I, I think his rules are amazing. Uh, rule number one is stocks always go up, and rule number two is don't forget rule number one. It's, it's just, simple rules to live by. I think this is great advice. It's Here's my way, back, to, back test works looks good. <laughs> Here's oh, my God, fearless yeah. prediction. You want to know my fearless prediction? He's going to go back to, and remember this is this kind of uh, follows in the conversation we had uh, Mike yesterday with the uh, with Steve uh, that we're going to have on a podcast. But the moment that sports start back up, and he closes his bar stool thing and starts betting on sports again, I actually think all the Robin Hood guys go away and they they have somebody something else to play with. I'm going to mark the top. The moment we have like NBA goes live, that'll be the peak of the S and P. Fearless prediction. Oh, nice! I like By it. By the way, like I've it. been wrong. Uh, I've been over five. Did you say that. the morning? The second we go with NBA goes live. What? What is that? Well, yeah, that's the sports betting connection. National Basketball Association. National <laughs> Basketball. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I see. Okay. So as soon as, I mean? as soon as they go live, because we, of the sports betting, we we'll just sports. will be the yeah. distraction. It's that's a popular fun. sport, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> we always make fun of you for that, but that was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> it's a popular sport. <laughs> is that the one with the puck? <laughs> close Mike. close yep so um so, what is yeah. our topic for today what are we going to chat about sorry i digress i was just it was well yeah no first of all hey first of all i'd like to thank everybody who keeps joining us for these uh these conversations which are you know meant to be said in a half and a happy hour setting so so yeah as we've said use your brains to uh extract any knowledge and hopefully get lots of entertainment and we do want to we do want to have the conversations that you might have you know, at the uh, happy hour setting after a, a, a week's work where, um, you know, there's lots of uh, confusing rhetoric going around the investment world. And, and please subscribe and like and share the share the show. Uh, it'll help us gather, um, you know, more more guests to have on as well as um, our own personalities. And uh, today it's 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 beverages and leverages or 
uh, I guess, uh, leverage over beverages and risk and reward and volatility of all um, sizing and the implications for strategy uh, volatility and all that. And um, but I'm going to start with the uh, the beverage side. So I've I've selected a nice uh, Chardonnay today, a Montfrère Chardonnay. Uh, it's from it's from California. It's got a nice little elephant on a bicycle. I think that's fairly apropos for today's market. So that's my. You beverage. elected to, to okay. have a nice. taste of Montfrère. I exactly, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> well played. That's good. That's I have good. a West Avenue cider today. Delicious Ooh. heritage apple, sour cherry cider, product of Ontario. It's very good. Excellent. I'm drinking a uh, vodka fruit punch because I have uh, just in the last couple of days tried to kick sugar again, um, which, you know, I've been indulging in um, far too frequently uh, over this uh, quarantine. So I am I'm trying to sugar free solution here tonight. Um, so hopefully that'll well, be Well, this what? is Pino. Ooh, that I has see. in Canada. Now they show in, if you go to the LCBO, for those who don't know, we in Ontario, we have the, a, a government run liquor store that has all these bells and whistles. And in this case, you can actually look at the label for how many grams of sugar per liter. This one has four. So you can drink away. Outstanding. So be good, man. Four grams per what? liter. Four grams right. per liter. There's tons of those tons. Wow. Okay. You can drink a whole bottle of wine. And so be tons of liters. Adam's the king. Twenty-five <laughs> divided by four. <laughs> yeah. Tons of liters. They have extra liters at the store. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so why I think are we inspired is, to talk about this today, right? Yeah, I, th- I think, I think this is pretty interesting, actually. You've I got, agree. I agree. Um, you've got a couple Cal- of right. Go ahead. Cal- no, yeah, sorry to talk over you. Yeah, but th- so just I think it was this Monday, uh, if not late last week. Calpers, um, the California pension plan came out and stated that as a matter of policy, they're going to introduce uh, about $80 billion worth of leverage on their investment portfolio, which I want to say represents about a 30% um, leverage ratio on the value of their portfolio. Was it 20? 20. Well, that's what I saw from, uh, from Twitter, but I could be wrong. And there was all manner of, um, reaction to this statement. And so it just gave us a, an opportunity to pretext to talk about one of our favorite favorite topics. Um, we've read a lot about this, uh, you can't eat sharp ratio. And um, we talked a lot about the fact that the whole discussion of leverage is, as Mike will say, turtles. It's just, it's completely disingenuous because there's leverage everywhere. If you've got an equity portfolio, the leverage ratio in the S&P is two to one. Um, we all know that pensions and endowments have been leaning very heavily and at an accelerated rate into private investments like PE, you know, private equity and real estate and um, real estate and infrastructure. All of these have um, a lot of leverage embedded uh, in them. And so, you know, now they're sort of making this explicit, but really nothing's changed. Now, I do think it's an interesting uh, point of discussion about how they're going to use this leverage, whether they're going to use it wisely in order to enable them to further diversify their portfolio or whether they're just um, introducing what we sometimes call a Texas hedge where they're just sort of doubling down on that 
one primary risk premium, right? The equity risk premium that dominates most portfolios. So I, I think I can provide a little bit of context that I don't think any of you have had because I, I don't I don't know if I shared this with anybody yesterday, but I was in a, in a conversation with a CIO of a large pension plan here in Canada. Yesterday. I, I invited him to come, but he just he couldn't do it. He said he was zoomed out. Um, and uh, and so we were discussing our strategies, how they would fit with his his strategies, how how they did uh, during this first quarter. And he said, you know, the alternative sleeve was absolutely decimated. Um, ARP got destroyed in like a 12 vol ARP didn't do what they expected it to do. Their risk parity portfolio lost over 20% um, at 10 vol. Their, um, uh, their hedge fund portfolio out of all the hedge fund managers that they hired, only one made positive returns. Everybody else lost money. And so he said, do you want me to know what, you know, what we can do together? Absolutely nothing. Like I cannot mention to the board anything that has to do with alternative. The word alternative is gone. The world risk is gone. So risk uh, uh, parity, risk premium, that's, I just can't, it's not happening. And yet we are underfunded and we need to provide better returns. And so what I am leaning towards, I think the only tool left for me as a CIO is to use leverage on beta. And by beta, he means all the betas. And I said, okay, so you're taking you're taking a chapter out of CalPERS. And he's like, what's CalPERS doing? So independently, he came to the conclusion that all the stuff that was supposed to provide cushion and diversification and offset and excess returns has been dismal for the last two years. The board is tired of it. The only thing left that I can, because what he mentioned was indeed, we know when I mentioned the two to one on equities in terms of leverage and so on, he said, oh, I'm well aware. The, the board is well aware. That's why I can do that. Because it is the easiest new thing that's old, right? That because they're already using leverage and I can be explicit about it, the only difference is that that's implicit leverage versus explicit leverage, that they're legitimately going to go out to, to banks and say, I need this much leverage in order to get more exposure to capture that excess return that I need to provide for my, um, for my constituents. So with so that- So I mean, mind, it's fine, but are they just talking about levering on onto equity beta or equity beta proxies? Or you know, are they talking In their about, case, it's more like a 60-40. They're levering the 60-40. So yeah, so then equity beta. Yeah. Since 60-40 is- Equity and bonds. The 60-40 will be, it's like a, like, what's that ETF that uh, you can, uh, Jake? The 90-60? The 90-60. It's a, yeah. something well, like that. that's fine. But then they've got a larger capital allocation to bonds to, to mm -hmm. even out the risk. It's not yep. even, but it's better. Is that what they're doing? They're levering up that the is, bonds? That is, that, that is what I took away from that. They're levering up both sides. He kept saying beta. We're well, if you preserve the 60-40 capital ratio, you're just leaving up equity equities. Sure. Or yep. it's From a risk on Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, but, uh, there's but again, a couple of things I, I'd love to hear about. It's too, the only thing I, left. Well, it's the only thing under, understandable that's left. And there's problems in there because the, the sharp ratio of that portfolio vacillates between 0. 0.1 and 1 or 2. And so you lever that short ratio and over one, two, three rolling periods, you're going to have vastly different outcomes. And then you get into decade long periods where neither stocks nor bonds perform and, and you have that lever. That's going to be a real sort of mess. But I kind of think this conversation actually triggered my uh, thoughts because I haven't had a chance to connect with Adam yet on 
some of the things that you might have discussed with Andrew. Um, I think it's, um, oh, sorry, Andrew, you said a call with him. Oh, Andrew Miller. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, so we did. With Andrew we did Miller on, on, on return assumptions and then bringing that back to the research, the research report from research affiliates that talked about the actual significant gap that the endowments have post COVID on their um, pension requirements on their distributions and whatnot. And so I would love to hear what, what you and Andrew sort of uh, touched on. If, if you touched on that, I actually don't know because I haven't had a chance to uh, listen to it yet, but you know, those, yeah, we those dots were things um, I, I wouldn't mind connecting. I mean, Andrew had, had some really good points um, as usual. One of them was that, um, non-recourse leverage is very different than recourse leverage. So, you know, CalPERS is in a position to be able to issue debt. And now, I don't know whether that's true in terms of their corporate or, or um, uh, you know, the, the rules of CalPERS, but, but they could certainly modify the rules if it's not currently encoded in the rules to allow them to issue intermediate or long-term bonds, right? So you can issue debt and that becomes non-recourse leverage, right? If you issue debt, five-year debt, 10-year debt, then um, you can use that leverage to empower as a force multiplier on your diversified portfolio because if markets drop, then the um, the people that have loaned you money are not in a position there's like- no, There's no margin call. Exactly, there's no margin <laughs> right. call. And, and you're also locking in your interest rate too, uh, as opposed Absolutely. to- uh, you know, uh, margin typically is uh, obviously changing every night. Uh, so, so you get into variable interest rate risk, which is a whole other element of all of this. So, yep. Interesting. Yep. Um, they obviously have different balance sheet components, right? There's a, there's a very lo- large liability on the balance sheet. And so mm-hmm. you can, you can use the, um, the, the leverage to better manage that liability more directly as well. So there's, there's there's a, a variety of moving parts, and um, if they well, do this properly, I think it, they should be lauded for it. If they do it improperly with it's just like a levered beta bet, then I think then they're just all in on black. In, in, implicit in that too, though, is that is the fact that like pension liabilities grow as the risk free rate drops, right? So you've got this this downward pressure on very long term. Um, sort of rate assumptions, which actually sort of balloon the size of of the the pension obligation, um, and then you go to the market. All right, you're going to get some capital in, and then the assumption there has to be that that capital has to be allocated across a various number of assets that that will produce a return in excess of that capital, and the payments regardless of the margin call issue, right? Which gives you a, a longer time frame to have the vacillations back and forth, but you still do need to have a an excess return. And if if equity risk, if the equity risk premium disappears for a decade, um, that that becomes a, a still a challenging problem over over a decade. I'm not sure how long they were thinking about issuing the bonds or what that might be uh, like, but it, it still it still creates some interesting uh, maybe unintended consequences or you know, long-term consequences that are maybe more difficult to um, manage. It certainly it just reduces the path dependencies in the short term, right? Like if they're mm-hmm. able to issue bonds yeah. and create yeah, I mean, duration on their liabilities, then they're adding, obviously, I mean, they're 
liabilities have fairly long duration anyways, but because they're, they're pension liabilities, they're adding to that. But it, you know, the alternative is you've got, you're borrowing using short-term borrowing instruments that are callable, which is a typical mm-hmm. margin type borrowing situation against long-term assets, right? So it's a, you've got this major duration mismatch, like take on debt, match your, um, your investments against the duration of that debt and diversify so that, as you say, you're not vulnerable to a situation where you're levering up the balance sheet into a period where the growth side of that equation doesn't deliver enough returns to at least overcome the cost of borrowing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but, but I mean, the whole point is if you, if you borrow, it allows you, if you give it a fixed return requirement, if you, if you're allowed to borrow or introduce leverage, it allows you to diversify because when you yeah, look across the cross section of the available investments, stocks are high volatility and commodities are high volatility, but there are other types of investments that are much lower volatility. If you want to create diversification in the portfolio, you need to have some of those low volatility investments in there alongside the high volatility investments. And in order to hit your required return, you then have to lever up that full portfolio. So, you know, it just... it. It provides the option to diversify, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're using it to diversify. Correct. And even if you get into a long-term deflationary environment, even a even a minor one, you are now paying, you are having to pay back those loans that you took on a long-term basis with monies that are more valuable when you pay them back than they were when you took them out. If if we're truly in a sort of pervasive uh, disinflationary or or sort of um, well, and the value of your liabilities is declining anyways, because presumably the rates are, are going up and you've locked in a, a long-term rate and your mm-hmm. um, liabilities themselves are sensitive to the prevailing rates. So your right. um, asset liability ratio is is improving in the, in the case of inflation. And if you diversify properly, then you also have an opportunity to amplify that effect because the assets in your portfolio that are designed to thrive during inflationary periods are producing excess returns. Um, yeah. And then you, you know, while the other yeah. sleeves of the portfolio are which, suffering. Which answers the first question we got today, which, which is how it is managing leverage when both bonds and stocks are going down at the same time. Right. So that's a great question. And I think you covered it. You don't, um, you're just more exposed to both of them going down at the same time, like in the 1970s. They were highly they were they were correlated, and they both returned around zero for the decade in real terms, right? So if you don't have an inflationary asset, whether it's tips or commodities or gold, and uh, you're not levering the whole portfolio, then that becomes a problem. It becomes a real gap. Yeah. Um, so that's you know I agree. Uh, levering up just the traditional sixty forty can be a dangerous thing. Now this this um, has the potential to to devolve into just another conversation about the merits of risk parity, right? So I'm wait, gonna, why not? Wait, wait, wait. Why not? Okay. Okay. Well so, it's not it's not here. it's not just risk parity. I think I think risk parity is is just thinking through one lens of of asset classes and the potential for asset classes to provide diversity to a portfolio. But that is not the only lens. There are the the factor premia there are um, things like carry, which even in a negative right environment, you have carry. And um, so 
again, it's it's more about the maximization of diversification. If you're going to introduce leverage into a portfolio, it is very important that you are really providing some diversification to the portfolio that truly lets that that portfolio thrive in any environment which you may encounter. Um, and that's not just an asset class based discussion. That's a factor based discussion as well. Yeah, and I think one that is uh, often overlooked. Yeah, um, it's sorry. it's complicated because we use these terms interchangeably internally, right? Where risk parity is is not just the traditional idea of um, diversify appropriately into stocks, bonds, and commodities. It is rather identify as many different sources of risk and return as possible, and then form a portfolio of all of those different sources of return in a way that allows each of those sources of return to express their unique personalities when the time is right. So um, yeah, so so yes, and the idea is risk parity is much broader than what everybody seems to think it is, right? Just Which hold is equities and equities. So, yeah. so, you know, I want to address one thing that uh, comes to mind now that I have, you know, you see CalPERS talk about leverage as a pension plan and they're kind of letting, when, when CalPERS does anything, all the other pension plans are like, oh, that's okay to do? Okay, well, I'll do it, right? And I thought this, indivi- this individual was, was echoing what, they were, what CalPERS had said, but in fact, he came to the conclusion on his own. I wonder how many more CIOs of large pension plans are coming to the same conclusion and saying, look, the only thing left is leverage here. Uh, the question here is, in, 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 there's, a, there's a belief that there is a level of instability in the markets right now due to many things, one of which is this um, volatility targeting, like this, this that, that the financial universe is actually levering up more than it ever has, and that this can lead to instability. Now that pension plans are doing it, how, how do we think about that, that? Well, I'm not sure that that's what they're doing either, right? I mean, the, there's... A, the idea of dynamic volatility targeting is different than the idea of it creating a strategic asset allocation that you lever and rebalance, right? So they're two different things. Dynamic volatility targeting strategies are observing the current um, volatility environment. And since you're targeting a certain volatility, if the market volatility is high, you need to reduce exposure. And when the market volatility is low, you need to increase exposure. But that's obviously not the only way to use leverage or target volatility. You can target a very long-term volatility as long as you have strong assumptions about the the true distribution of volatility on average over the long term. If you sort of say, well, equities have an average volatility of 18 or 20%, and bonds have an average volatility of 5%, and then you create a strategic portfolio that achieves that target over the very long term or is targeted to do so you're not reacting to changes in market volatility other than perhaps to the extent it shifts your current strategic allocation out of whack, you'll then rebalance back to that strategic allocation. But that's that's actually counter-cyclical. The, the activity moves in the opposite direction from the dynamic risk or dynamic volatility targeting, targeting approach. Um, so in fact, those two are nicely offsetting mechanisms that, that can preserve... Um, some kind of market equilibrium rather than exacerbating it as it exactly. is so often can pervade or, um, you know, uh, conveyed in, um, in podcasts and into literature. So, yeah. And I think that's exactly what we, what I, from what I've read CalPERS is likely to do. It's going to set a leverage amount 
And then when it goes beyond below that, it's going to probably rebalance and re-up, right? Um, and this is what, again, not to talk about risk parity again, but risk parity is divided into two camps. Those that are dynamic, volatility targeted, and those that set an amount of leverage and then are constantly acting as a counter-cyclical um, approach using leverage to stabilize the market, right? Yeah. So anyway, that's that's something that's come up quite a bit. Wanted to to address it. Um, well, I, thought, I thought it was interesting. In the, I don't know if you guys actually had a chance to look at the research affiliates paper on this, but they sort of made the connection that in an environment where you've got a risk-free rate of 1%, call that the 1.15% on long, long dated treasury bonds, any return assumption over 4% is aggressive. The average state pension fund assumption is 6.5 with a large dispersion around it. So that, that those are very large pools of capital that are faced with a pretty significant problem that I'm not sure that they're addressing and CalPERS is going to add leverage. At the same time, they removed their tail protection, which is, you know, if, if you were going to, I'm pretty sure it was not CalPERS that, that decided. Yeah, 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 to, I think you're right. To, so they, they did, yeah, they, they removed did. like a few months before the event, right? Right. So, so now you're going to lever into, well, we don't know exactly how they're going to be levering. So that, that is, you know, let's. I, I don't at least, and if if anyone has some comments out there that does know a little bit more detail, it'd be great. Um, but it would seem to me that you would you might prioritize some sort of uh, protection um, if you were going to lever in order to. One of those ways is obviously we discussed is diversification, right? So you, if you diversify, you are you know cutting off the tails of the individual assets because their exposure to the structural regimes that they they have a proclivity to react under. And so that will smooth returns. You're also doing that through diversifying the portfolio, and so, and there's a so there's a number of ways to do that. We talked about adding factors and whatnot, but it just it just seems strange that the reaction is let's throw the tail hedge out the window and now let's lever it. It just seems quite reactionary. Or, but you know, I hadn't I hadn't really considered the the idea that they would be just issuing bonds into the marketplace, um, which is another interesting wrinkle in that whole thing it allows it allows you to take a much longer period of time to smooth out the returns yeah and i'm not sure that that's what they're doing but i think that that would be a um i mean that's that's more akin to the to the buffett method right i mean mm. i i was wondering permanent as capital. we go through this yeah exactly you've got sort of more permanent capital right i mean uh, aqr published a, it was Lossie peterson published a few years ago a paper called buffett's alpha um where they decomposed Buffett's excess returns into factor exposures and access to very cheap non-recourse leverage through the float of his insurance company and determined that Buffett ran his portfolio at an average leverage ratio of about 1.6. So I was wondering sort of what the, you know, is it, is it, are they sort of trying to mimic the Buffett bet here um, with this leverage or, you know, just lever up into, equities or, you know, they leave it up into some other factor exposures. Buffett obviously preferred quality companies and low volatility, et cetera. Maybe they're taking some steps in that direction, which I think would be, um, would be positive. Um, but I wonder, you know, I mean, there's, the reality is there's a huge amount of leverage already on the balance sheet just by virtue of their allocations to equities, private equity, infrastructure, and alternatives, you know? So you're, you're, in many respects, sort of levering up an already highly levered portfolio. Um, and if you're not taking steps to diversify away the, the concentrated risk in the portfolio, then you're probably compounding the problem rather than 
creating a force multiplier on the solution. Well, what's interesting is that the, 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 a large portion of the leverage, um, if not the highest portion of the leverage in a lot of these plans happen to be private equity, private debt, right? And so one of the, one of the discussions we had yesterday with him was I asked him, so, you know, Canadians are really big into private equity. Canadian funds are big into private equity right now, uh, hitting up to like 50% limits in, in the long-term portfolio. How is everybody feeling about that? And he's, he's like, on the one hand, it's feeling good. It's dampened our volatility. Um, you know, there's something magical about that. On the other hand, when, I mean, the cockroaches are there and we don't have a clue. We're completely blind as to how much each individual private equity company is vulnerable to, how much leverage they have in the books. And we won't find out for 18 months to two years. So this is a kind of the trickle down effect. And, but I think we all know, and he, he knew viscerally as well, that the leverage is a big problem there. And the only thing that's allowing them to deal with it is the fact that you don't have to mark to market. But it is- Well, it, there's implied beta too, right? I know we, we know that we can oh, yeah. model um, private equity returns with exposure to small value or, or increasingly given the current size of the deals, mid cap value uh, companies, we know that small value has a beta 1.3, 1.4 to the market. So there's sort of this implied leverage anyways, in terms of just the beta of the cyclicality of these companies to general market cyclicality. And then you layer on excess explicit leverage. And then you layer on, you know, that the, the private equity companies themselves are layering on. And then you layer on further leverage in terms of your borrowing to invest in private equity uh, tranches. And that's the sort of negative or potentially highly fragile um, leverage that I think investors should be concerned about. And I mean, I, I, I'm not persuaded that that's not actually the direction that they've went, that they've gone. Um, and it, from your conversation with, with your um, contact, it does seem like that is the direction that, that these, these companies are going. It's just like, we're all in this together. We're all loaded up on equity beta. If equity beta fails us, we're all going down together, you know? Right. Um, that we're going to go down spectacularly. We're going to from the government anyway, right? Yeah. yeah, we're going to be bailed out, which, which is, is sort of the, it, well, right. it's sort of kind of a couple of questions that we have here too, is the incentive to deliver up all asset classes. Okay, where does that end, right? So leverage in and itself is a, um, is a claim on future growth and it has to either be paid back or restructured or debased. So, um, so you have that issue, which I think, Adam, you're sort of alluding to, and also talking about the, the instability that it can create. So you've got more efficient, less volatile markets in the short term, but they are also subject to uh, larger sort of single events, right? The instability mm -hmm. creates this larger break point. And, um, and then, you know, the question of moral hazard is brought in and I'm, for the long-term health, I'm not sure that means the long-term health of the market. I'm assuming maybe it does, but um, I, I think that there's not only moral hazard, from the standpoint of the, the idea of risk taking so that you'll get everybody doing this until at some point you get a, a massive break. There is also the regulatory um, hazard, moral hazard, which is that of the central banks of the world becoming more and more powerful. These are not elected officials. These are not officials that come into the purview of um, being elected in a democratic format, yet they hold incredible amounts of power. 
and you see, you know, you go from 2000, uh, where the U.S. had 15,000 banks to today having 5,000 banks. That's a lot, a, a pretty significant contraction in the number of banks that can be operating in separately distinct marketplaces that can have some sort of diversity of their loan book and diversity of their opportunity. Economic sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Correct. And so so you this this is this continued increase of potential instability. It's that it's that, you know, castle of sand that you don't know which grain causes the potential sort of uh earthquake or the the potential actual realization of uncertainty where you get the sort of the falling sand uh, down, down the pile. Um but, you know, it is it, it these are It's these a are, weird it's a weird situation because, you know, as you say, leverage, all things equal, leverage creates instability. But to the extent that diversification creates robustness. Mm-hmm. So if leverage is used to increase diversification, there is this, there's this competing dynamic. It's interactive, right? So if you're taking on leverage in order to increase diversification, you're actually making the system more resilient. Then there comes a point where too much leverage makes it, it overcomes the value of diversification and we begin to move back into a state of fragility. I don't think we're anywhere near just observing a typical pension portfolio or a typical client portfolio or endowment portfolio. I don't think we're anywhere near the point where if there was a dedicated push to increase diversification, we would be we would have too much leverage for the amount of diversification. The problem is we're increasing leverage without driving towards greater diversification. And so that increased leverage creates fragility. So there's this, I think there's this competing dynamic. Agreed. Agreed. I think that that helps answer the next question that's that's in the in the post. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm just I'm just saying like the, the I I 100% agree with that. Some some of the elements where people are looking to diversify, like we've talked about private equity and some of these other investments, where you the the volatility is not as easily ex, as expressed. Maybe kind of low liquidity, low vol, not fairly representing the risk, but but the risk is actually high. You know, we've learned low vol often means high risk. And I love your comparison earlier of, you know, strategic allocation offsets vol targeting because vol targeting gets it wrong when vol is really low and vol targeting gets it wrong when vol is really high. Generally, it's good. And the strategic rebalancing can can do do the opposite so that they work. But I think you got to be careful when you diversify and leverage, being careful with regards to what you're trying to put in there don't fool yourself with some of the things you add into the mix. There may be a, really a lot point. more leverage than you, than you think. Um, and you, and you can't, you're so right. I mean, you can't, you can't use volatility as a signal if they're obfuscating volatility, right? Like clearly you have no sense of what the true volatility. I mean, we all know volatility is flawed anyway, but it's, a whole order of magnitude more flawed when you're deliberately obfuscating the volatility by using private marks on whatever your um, investments are like private equity does, right? Like it's this, it's this strange open secret that private equity funds have low volatility because their marks are not priced by the market. They're priced by accountants, and right. the the price that accountants effect. put on it changes 
more slowly than the discount rate that market participants use to price liquid assets. And this seems to be a benefit that institutions especially really appreciate and adhere to. And it's like we everyone's agreed that we're just not going to discuss the fact that they're deliberately obfuscating volatility. Right. Well, it, well, it's also what's what's interesting is how volatility is viewed in different asset classes by the general public, right? Um, when you talk about uh, leveraging, sorry, leverage uh, is viewed by the general public. So when you talk about leverage in the perspective of a portfolio, the first thing that comes to mind to most of the retail investors I talk to is, well, you can lose more than what you got. Like I, they're thinking you're going to use leverage to lever up small cap equities, which used to be a quite a big thing in Canada with the mining companies when I got in the business, right? That's right. Margin yeah. accounts were the thing and everybody was levering up small cap equities and indeed you could lose all of your money and more. And it is a real risk, right? So well, most of those funds are not, not around anymore. That's right. Well, but, oh, oh, but no, they but I'm were talking about retail of dollars investors. in 2006, 2007, right? But even the retail investors were were listening to the portfolio manager's quarterly call saying what they were doing and what they were levering. They were going up to their broker with their margin accounts and, and levering to the helps, right? So that is one way to view leverage. And now because of what happened in 08, Canadian investors are terrified of the, the word leverage, right? So this is this general leverage version. Um, but as you mentioned, this is a different story when you're dealing with a well-diversified portfolio that when you're using leverage in order to, to increase diversification, right? You're not levering up a small cap equity. You're you're using leverage to maximize diversification. Um, the other area that I always find interesting when when I mention, look, we're going to grab a well-diversified portfolio and you can have it non-levered and this is kind of the result you're going to get. If you use a little bit of leverage, here's you can get a better outcome for the same risk, right? This is kind of Nobel Prize winning uh, capital market line type of stuff. And they're like, absolutely not. I just, I'm uh, totally against leverage. Okay, well, tell me about your your home and the two other homes that you own. How much leverage do you have there, right? 20% money down, 80% leverage. Oh, well, that's totally accepted. It's just, it's Canada. Toronto doesn't go down, right? It's totally acceptable for institutions to give massive amounts of leverage at a five to one ratio to individuals. The individuals are okay with taking it with perfect comfort. But the moment you talk about maybe adding a 20% leverage to a well-diversified portfolio, it's absolutely not going to happen. I can lose it all, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just found that cognitive dissonance to be, to, has always been fascinating to me. And you can talk about it with them and point it out. And yeah, they just still like, yeah, it's still different. So maybe what is the difference? What, what is it? Is it different? Is it I that we're never going to leverage, right? It's people don't notice. Mm-hmm. People are not constantly pricing their homes. So they don't, they, they don't, they're not thinking about their wealth in the context of the, this levered asset. They, so, you know, there's just no incentive for, for anybody to have risk aversion. There's no the, incentive to call in the margins either, right? Uh, the margin well, calls for, for those because then they abandon the property and it goes to, to shit. So they're like, oh, you can't pay? Sure, stay around. Let me know when you can pay again. Maybe, maybe there's some safety there, right? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, in Canada, we haven't really in like 30 years, we haven't had any sort of um, downturn in real estate. Even in 2008, there wasn't a meaningful downturn. It was kind of, yeah, it sort of flatlined for a year and then resumed its climb. So, I mean, as Canadians, we don't really know. And in in, 
uh, other jurisdictions. I mean, obviously in Europe, you had all these borrowers in Eastern Europe who were borrowing in Swiss francs and euros who um, be- became very intimate with the risks of, uh, of leverage where the uh, liabilities were rising profoundly because the currency that they borrowed in had been rising relative to their local currency at the same time as the value of their local asset had declined by a substantial amount. And so you've got sort of these these double whammies, right? So I think if you were going to talk to somebody in Ukraine or um, you know some of these Eastern European states, that they would give you a very different um, impression of how to think about uh, the the borrowing for for a home. Um, so I think it, yeah, it's very well, even even I was dealing with a private uh, wealth individual, and he was. Uh, Lauding how he's, he was very against leverage, and then I asked him what he's doing right now, and he's a deep value, small cap stock picker. And I look, I, I stared at him, and I was like, "So you must understand the balance sheet of their particular companies." He's like, "Oh yeah, I, I get them. I, I'm fully involved." And how much leverage are they using? Well, it's different. It's balance sheet leverage, not the same thing, right? Again, hidden leverage skews the perception of the types of risks that you're taking, right? It's so, Rod, if, yeah, uh, I'm just I'm just thinking of like okay, so you're absolutely right. Five to one, if not ten to one, is the norm. If not twenty to one, in fact, is not the norm. If you're first yep. buying a home in in Canada, and there is there is a comfort level with that. Let's let's go to a, a five to one. Um, I'm just imagining I'm a listener trying to figure out well, what what could I do. You want to go five to one. What what do you invest in, and how how do you most efficiently get that leverage? And I know the second one. There's a, there's a, there's a you know leverage is a tool, and the, the availability of the variety of tools varies dramatically, which we can touch on later. But what do you do with a five to one? If you're, if you're going to leverage five to one, what do you? How do you? Does that change what we've already talked about at all? Or it it comes down to we always talk about this left tail in equities, right? When you invest in the market, you have this left tail reality. That you know, it's a, a four standard deviation event should happen once every ten thousand years, but it actually happens once every five to ten years. That is true in a, a single asset class. Uh, it is a problem if you're levered up, and every five to ten years you're going to have a four standard deviation event, and you're toast. I, I mean, it's almost certain that you're going to lose all your money. So, how do you uh, do that better? Well, how do you how do you reduce the tails? Well, you reduce the tails by having things that zig when the other one zag. Let's look at 2020. So what happened to the average portfolio? I mean, the, the truth is that the vast majority of real money isn't 100% equities, right? Or 150% equities. They're, they're in equities and they're in a bunch of tr- bonds and, and tr- sovereign bonds, government bonds, German guilds, German bonds, Canadian government bonds, all made money while the market was going to shit. Uh, gold was up, right? So when you include those asset classes, guess what happens? You start you start seeing a more normally distributed function. You, those those fat tails actually you don't see four standard deviation events. Um, you you can see three standard deviation events very rarely, but you'll you're now hovering around one to two standard deviation events with a well diversified portfolio. So now that you th- that that's kind of out of the way for the most part, you can now use thoughtful leverage in order to use that. Now the question is where can you get that leverage? How much were they charged? Like I remember when we were part of a broker dealer, what was their margin rates 
how much was the borrow cost? 8% or something like that back in mm-hmm. 2000? And- for, for what? For what particular like margin, a margin account in oh, just a, yeah, six percent plus prime, six to eight percent plus prime. So I mean, the problem is you know the you average, overcome that. There's no there's no risk premium. And there's that. nothing there, right? So the average individual can't say to his broker, "I'm like, oh, I you know discuss talk hmm. to some of these guys at Resolve." Actually, I saw this advertisement on TV the other day, and Fidelity Schwab still charged six percent, and IB Interactive Brokers was talking about how they charge like one and a half or whatever it is. Right. So there's your spread. It's it's in the current marketplace. I think it's around five percent for someone at one of the large broker dealers to try and employ any kind of retail leverage. It's not. It yeah. really is not worth the. Um, it, it's really hard. <laughs> really, really even hard. a thoughtful investor that listens to this conversation and says, "Okay, I, I mean, leverage is useful if I have a truly diversified portfolio. I'm going to talk to my broker and try to implement." They, it's not. It's a non-starter with that much vig. Right. So first of all, you have to go and go to other broker dealers that provide really institutional style uh, borrow if you're going to try to lever up ETFs or equities or whatever. Um, and that actually that from going from a traditional broker to that requires a level of expertise. And, and you know, the brokers that offer that are not easy to deal with as an individual. Right. So that's yeah. even, it's doable, but it's tough. Yep. Um, and then let's say that you do get there and you realize this is really good, but it's still expensive, right? Because I'm dealing with smaller account sizes or maybe maybe I'm just doing like cash borrow. Well, this is where I think what you were getting at, because I know that's your jam, Jason. Um, why don't you tell me about the efficiency of, of being able to use leverage on on using futures contracts, right? Uh, what is What is so special about futures contracts? I mean, it almost seems like it's primary function. Is to, to yeah, it's it's that. it's a. Well, let me first start by saying I'm not recommending anyone go out in five to one and borrow borrow to invest. I just just was trying to entertain the idea. If you're going to do that, you're really going to think about diversifying, and you're really going to think about how are you going to get that borrow. And I think we hit on the point I wanted to get to was that. Oh really? Okay. Ability, I had my banker on the line. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ability to borrow, um, and, and borrowing is a tool, and it needs to be used wisely uh, but the but there are vast differences between um, uh, John public and uh, a uh, a professional investor and an institutional investor so certainly one of the tools we have available to us as a professional investor are futures contracts which have implicit leverage uh, built into them and on a daily basis um, every day the there's a clearing mechanism where we don't have counterparty risk, so we're not, we're, we're that that counterparty risk is is cleared for us on a, on a daily basis. So we have a great degree of comfort in our counterparty, which is a big risk if you take on um, uh, take on uh, if you borrow or lend um, uh, uh, large amounts of, of of money to an individual, and you say well, let's square up in a year. Um, uh, that that creates uh, uh, bending and breaking in the system, but you know, um, I won't get into all the nitty-gritty details, but certainly the, we've seen that the use of uh, futures contracts used wisely, um, uh, you know, can uh, create tremendous uh, opportunities from a, a borrowing cost standpoint. It's just less expensive uh, to borrow. It gives uh, ourselves access to uh, effective borrowing rates and credit uh, advantages in terms of low credit risk uh, that um, that uh, 
are, are just generally not available. Even you, uh, a smaller investor can use it, but they're dealing with, um, you, you need size to deal with it properly because futures contracts. By Each the contract are, is 50 to a couple hundred thousand dollars yeah, per contract, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I always like to think of it as you're, when you're buying gas, unleaded gas, you're not buying enough to fill your your Honda Pilot. You're buying a one train car full of gas, yeah, so it's you're large fill chunks. Your pool. Yeah, you're not going to fill your car. You're going to fill your pool, right? right. <laughs> With gasoline, so, exactly. Yeah. Didn't you, didn't you do the calculations on that when we were having the storage issue at minus, minus 37 crude? You figured out how much. Yeah, when it's, yeah, yeah. I was, I was contemplating draining my pool, draining the water out and filling it with crude oil at uh, <laughs> being paid to put it in there. But uh, there's a lot of other uh, technicalities. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, you know, the, the point on the, on the, on the questions, a well-diversified portfolio can only be constructed using historical returns, adding leverage changes the distribution and invalidates the analysis in a dynamic system. Yeah, true. I mean, these are these are complex and adaptive systems, and uh, but I do think there is a rhyme to the way history sort of repeats itself. There is a there is a, a human behavioral proclivities that that do lend themselves to performance chasing, um, to bias of, of recency, and um, and that creates the hurting aspect. And that that hurting aspect for humans is is pretty deeply genetically rooted. Um, and I think this, this is, uh, this is Mikey G I'm going to, it's Michael G, but I'll, I'll nickname him Mikey G. Um, As a fellow Mike, you can yeah, take liberties. With- liberties. <laughs> um, he also mentions the fact that diversified portfolios, um, <clears throat> raise the correlation in the moment of, um, of the liquidity event, right? So sort of that, that mid March period where you had liquidity across, pretty much everything. And then you truly understand what is, what is long vol and what is short vol. <laughs> and even things that you might expect would be, you know, trades that do well in short vol, like, uh, you know, long treasuries actually struggled with some liquidity requirements in that, in that period. So um, you, you make some, you make some good points. I think there there's are a clue there too, right? Yeah. There's a bit of a clue. Um so, so just going back to his idea of how a well-diversified portfolio can only be constructed in retrospect, I'm not sure that's quite true. You know, I mean, certainly there are elements to it that rec- that lean into history, um, but I think we can safely say that there are, you know, that that commodities and hard assets are fundamentally designed to thrive during inflationary episodes. That stocks are fundamentally designed to do well in a growth environment that bonds are fundamentally designed to do well during deflationary episodes. There's So there are elements to diversification. I mean, if you want to take it ex- to extremes, you know, a put option is structurally designed to be negatively correlated to whatever the underlying it's, yeah, it's so hedging. It's so, designed yeah. to deal with inflationary periods. Yep. So yeah, I think, I think, good I think like, if you wanted to yeah. take it to the limits, which is I think what Mike was saying. So, what he's talking about is correlation risk, right? So these things are non-correlated until they all are correlated. There's a risk there for sure. Um, and the question is, how long is that risk? When does it happen? And I think it happens at liquidity events when, when there's a complete like, okay, let's just call, let's just take all the bets off the table and go to cash. And we saw that in March. We saw it. We see it every time there's a major market. <clears throat> There's like a, a momentary period where the rug's been pulled up from under you. And that's when the Fed steps in and makes sure that the markets are working and functioning correctly. And the moment that they step back in and add that oil to the gears, 
all of a sudden the diversification comes back online. But there is that gap risk. And the more levered you are, the bigger the gap. I would venture to say that if you, let me finish my thoughts. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry, you can finish. That gap, that bat could possibly be filled by what, you know, the the most loved and hated uh, uh, option, which is that tail protection, right? That thing that's there when, let's say, we gap down, everything correlates all of a sudden for three days down, volatility spikes, a long vol strategy can mitigate a lot of the the issues with the, um, with whatever lever position you want to be in. Right. Totally. And I think th- this is where it gets hard. This is where it, it, we're quite systematic in our thinking and it becomes more art. And I think, Adam, you've got a great story of, of 2008 where you pinpointed the epicenter of the European banks as being, you know, the closest to the actual epicenter of the of the um, uh, the the uh, tectonic event, if you will. Mm hmm. And, and maybe you can share some stories around that because it's really hard to do that. <laughs> Even when you. Well, yeah, think- I mean, and it requires a different way of. Well, it, you know, there are ways absolutely using using network topology and there's quantitative ways to identify cluster centers or where that where, you know, risk centers. And so this is absolutely a, a very interesting area of, to, to explore. And there's some there's some really good sort of war stories um, from from 2008. And I'm, I'm certainly have to go there. I did want to. I did want to talk about, because I didn't mention sort of this clue and Michael G um, mentioned the idea that, that when you add leverage, even in the presence of, of strong diversification, that when, when more market participants are leaning into leverage, eventually the leverage itself becomes the systemic risk, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really interesting statement. I think there's a clue there because it's not like it's impossible for systematic managers to measure to a reasonable approximation the total aggregate leverage in the system. And so is there a is there a feedback mechanism that systematic managers can use that allows them to look at their target leverage relative to aggregate leverage in the system and say, Great. There's not much leverage in the system. My systems say that I should be more levered. I'm going to get, I'm going to add leverage. But when my my systems say that I want to be more levered, but there's a high level of aggregate leverage in the system, then you begin to take, you begin to reduce leverage. And in that way, your adaptive system becomes adaptive to the markets adapting. And I think it just, I think it's an extra layer of thinking that again sort of validates or, or, provides a way to see how even systematic strategies can adapt to markets that are simultaneously adapting. Right? It's insanely so reflexive. It's insanely yes. reflexive. The moment that, I mean, uh, Mike actually just asked another great question. That's an assumption and the growth of systematic strategies designed to offset those biases changes those assumptions. He's right, right? You have this uh, this this self um, perpetu- this perpetuating system going creating a popular trade, but there are ways to like we've identified it. There are ways to identify that there is a bias, and how do you make sure that you use quantitative methods to identify the bias and not participate right? in the bias? Right? There's a difference because I think I think and Michael, you can clarify. Maybe we'll have you on. Maybe we'll bring um, you on a to future discussion, but. Um, <laughs> If you are moderating your leverage by instead taking on 
tail risk strategies. So you're you're you've identified you've got risk, you've got high levels of leverage. Therefore, I'm going to buy tail hedges. There's two ways to reduce the risk. Maybe there's more, but let's talk about two. One is reduce exposure. Another is keep your exposure and layer on more exposure. Right. So you're going to you're going to introduce a tail on edge. the other side. Yeah. You're going to, but, but that tail edge comes by introducing more exposure. If you're um, managing your tails or managing your exposure in response to the identification of the fact that there's lots of leverage risk in the system, you're adding to the leverage risk. If you are reducing exposure, you are not. So there's, I do think that there's, Michael G has a point, but I do, you know, there's two ways to think about it. And one way reduces aggregate risk and one way changes the nature of aggregate risk, but probably doesn't reduce it. And in many instances, they actually exacerbate it. My guess is that Michael would rather not have any leverage in the system. I'm not sure he's a tail hedge guy, but like the, the, the way to deal with this risk is to, you know, you're going to reduce your exposure, maybe have no leverage from an explicit perspective. You still have the leverage embedded in the asset classes that you invest in. Hopefully you're diversified. And you will still have at the level of risk that you have decided to participate in, you will have more gappier exposures than you have in the past if indeed this is true. Um, it, it is a reality of the markets. And the question is, do we want to give up? Or do you want to say, okay, that's the new reality. Let's try to be reflexive about it and solve it. Understand the nature of the market and and, and do something creative with it. I, I think um, It's always right. been this way. Yeah, And, and, and there's, there's another point of, um, in his initial comment, well-diversified portfolio, is there a way to identify how many actual bets you might have in a portfolio? Because those, those are dynamic as well. And, and how, how, how sturdy are they? How, how rugged are they to actually be, be supportive? Are they structural in nature? Are they um, potentially uh, vulnerable to um, that sort of liquidity event? Where so so for gold, gold's a great example. So you, you think that gold provides this this opportunity for a different asset class, but in March it really doesn't. It, the same, the same. I mean, even a better example would be Treasuries. You think that that's going to be there, and there was there was actually some liquidity issues in you know U.S. Treasuries and, and notes. Um, so it, it's a um, it's an it's an interesting. It's true, and you know, thinking about bets, as you see, right? There's there's a number of different lenses through which you can think about the number of independent bets in the portfolio, and um, if you just use the contemporaneous correlation estimates to calculate bets, then you're you're making some strong assumptions, right? And so if you're going to think about how truly diversified your portfolio is, then you need to create scenarios, given your current portfolio weights, let's create some scenarios where the correlation structure is highly punitive to your current exposures, right? Now, how many bets do you have in the portfolio? And what is the implied vol? And if you're not if you're simply running your exposure based on some kind of contemporaneous volatility estimate without introducing some scenarios or some shock estimates, then you are you run the potential to be very highly exposed by overestimating the number of bets in the portfolio at exactly the wrong time. Well, so and, and Mike, Mike has a follow-up point, sort of, um, you know, however, when leverage is used to generate return, rather than facilitate capital formation, it becomes a systemic risk. Well, it depends. Is it pro-cyclical or is it counter-cyclical to your particular portfolio? If it is a tail hedge protection um, or some sort of counter-cyclical event in your portfolio, 
I'm not sure that that actually becomes a systemic risk. It actually, it's, it's like a short seller. What do short sellers do? Well, a short seller actually stabilizes the market because when you have a decline in the market, those short sales need to be covered and it reduces the drop because those sales that were made by call it sharp money, smart money at the top have to rebuy and they will be a stabilizing force in the market. So I'm, I'm not sure. I also think that the idea of capital formation is so you, you, you get capital formation when you're, Return on your expected return on investment is higher than your weighted average cost of capital. So you've, there's a lot of there's a lot of estimates in there, right? Um, and it can be like I said, into a company no, that's just losing money. Absolutely, there's no capital formation there. Absolutely, you know, and obviously, if if investors and and corporate managers are acting rationally, then they're not taking on debt in order to facilitate investments in projects that have negative expected value right after accounting for the cost of capital. Um, so, I mean, in a, in a properly and, functioning and, economy, yeah. managers are deploying capital in order to create capital formation. But it's many wheels, it's many wheels in the machine, right? Going like they're all, it's just, it's, a, we love to, to kind of create narratives around it's this and that. But the truth is that to benign a, 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 a to, to, to make a bank seem like, them giving leverage for the sake of leverage to a portfolio manager that's just trying to get excess returns. Well, what's the bank's role there, right? The bank's is going to have a PL there. And the better they do there, the better they manage the amount of leverage that they provide, they're going to get a fee for that. That fee is going to go into their base. And that is going to help them finance good companies by lending to those real companies. It's all a vicious circle. It's, it, it, it's all part of... Are you are you managing the leverage in your portfolio as a bank well? Are you doing the right thing? And if you are, you're increasing your base. And if you're increasing your base, you're able to lend more to other companies. And you wouldn't have that better benefit that benefit if you hadn't, you know, gotten that extra juice from lending securities lending, right? So it's all and part. You can of only the measure thing. that in retrospect, right? You can only measure what the optimal leverage ratio is on the corporate balance sheet or on the bank balance sheet or in your portfolio. Ex post, once yeah. you've actually realized the return on capital, and then until then, it's an estimate. So you don't know if your activity is facilitating capital formation in advance. You only know that in retrospect, right? Um, and when, of course, you've got actors in the market that are that are creating distortions in the cost of capital, then how do you even think about capital Central. formation? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Actually, this comes back to a point that Jason made earlier about, about exchange listed types of futures where um, you have some certainty. Where if you if you were a counterparty to a swap with, with Lehman, you had a problem. If you were a counterparty to a exchange listed um, futures contract, you had you had a much higher level of certainty. And I think that that layers into another point that um, you know, I think Jason, you've got a ton of experience in this, and that's the different types of leverage. Or notionally, right, there's there's a NAV leverage. So there's a leverage on your NAV, but then there's in in the world of futures, there's a margin utilization um, approach, which because you know, having leverage of two or three hundred percent NAV leverage with a euro dollar contract is very different than the actual margin equity usage in the futures world. And I, I don't know if you want to take a poke at sort of enlightening people on that, Jason, at all or 
No, no, no. They're, they're kind of related. The, the margin to equity um, uh, relates to the volatility of the contract and the size, the, the size of the leverage of the contract, the notional value of the contract relative to how much margin you have to put up um, uh, does, does vary. And that, that actually, I look at that as the margin requirement as an uncertainty that never really works for you. So in, in the time of stress, crude oil contract margin skyrockets. When everyone's piling into VIX when volatility is low, their brokers are asking for four times notional. So it is it is actually there in a way to really, really it is there to protect the system. So there are a few things in place, again, for uh, larger uh, investors or professionals or institutions where you know we can have access to properly use uh, uh, use these these contracts. Um, I'm not Look, sure. If that there, let's remember what contract what futures are for, uh, right? They're for uh, they're very useful for producers. They're very useful for the economy. They're very useful for companies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, the yeah, less, and the less financial participants there are the less liquidity they have in order to hedge out those risks. So reducing the cost to hedge is important. It's part of the work. Now, at the at, on average, that is a fantastic, useful tool. Do we get out of whack? Of course we do, right? This is a dynamic system, and we can get too many speculators and too little hedgers, too many hedgers and too little speculators, and it's never a straight line. There, I, I, you know, We can continue to try and create regulation in order to minimize the variance there, but it, it's... In the commodity markets too, it's important to understand like in the height of the, of 2008, which I lived in, lived through, uh, and the liquidity just vanished everywhere. But, uh, there's a lot of markets where liquidity was extremely rich for coffee, for example, um, people still needed it. So there was the roasters needed to buy it. Starbucks was, was, was buying it. The growers were selling it. There was this, this rich, uh, market, uh, outside of speculators and hedgers. Of course, speculators and hedgers add a lot of liquidity to the margin, but to have that extra, um, element there, uh, of, of liquidity is, is huge. Um, and also even things like, uh, I remember on the run bonds or bonds period. Um, the only thing that had liquidity liquidity was the precise on the run bond for the 10 year and the five year, even in governments around the edges, you'd lose liquidity. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're, if you've got recourse loans and you got a slightly off the run bond and it's marked at a wacky price in combination with other stuff, then all kinds of things happen. I guess the lesson is leverage turns up the volume. And if you start getting static, it becomes more and more uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, you just need to be obviously, uh, um, exactly. just, just need to be balanced, responsible, look, it's, it's, find that place. We'll always see in periods of duress, those who took on too much leverage. Mm -hmm. And we'll also, I wonder how many of these people, um, care. Maybe they were just like, that's my risk tolerance. I knew it was going to get blown up. Maybe they didn't think that we're going to get blown up, but you know, in the marketplace, there are always people who have, who are risk seeking and people who are risk averse. And the people, there's people in the middle who, with the right amount of leverage, cruise through. Not a big deal, right? So, there are other excesses, absolutely. Are we seeing uh, a system that is levering up just generally where governments are levering up and we're seeing a, um, an increase of that? For sure we are, right? For sure. 
what's you know then the dynamics from inflation come in and, and how are we going to deal with that with that leverage are we going to reduce it and actually crush the economy or are we going to start inflating as much as we can in order to reduce our debts over time at which point what are the likely asset classes that are going to benefit from that like commodities and gold and, and the like that provide an offset to an economy that's in high inflation right so again it's just an, a living breathing thing and excesses come and they go and they came and in, in, at the end of 2007 and they went by the bottom of 2009 we might be finding a similar situation in the next decade or so right if you're thoughtful about managing risk, then you that's that's what you get paid for if you're an active manager, right? And if you're not an active manager, then being thoughtful about not levering up is probably a good idea. It's just so where do where do we want to land on this thing, right? I mean, I think I, where where I land on it is um, if Calpers is adding leverage to be able to hedge off risks that they currently are not hedging while not having to lower their expected portfolio return, I'm a hell yeah. Now, if they're going to use this leverage to buy some combination of tips, commodities, gold, other asset classes that are going to hedge their against nice exposure, which is, you know, in, in an amount that's appropriate given their liabilities as well, which actually have th that complicates the, their exposure to inflation in a way that a lot of investors don't have that kind of complication, but if they're uh, if they're using it for that, then I think it's I'm, I'm a hell yeah on that. If they're just using it in order to increase their expected return on their concentrated equity oriented portfolio, then I'm a hell no. And I think that that does in aggregate increase systemic risk. It increases the risk to the institution and it increases the risk to the economy. And makes the entire economy more pro-cyclical. So, yeah. like, and, uh, like in life, right? Right. The pensioners are going to experience a reduction in their benefits if that goes wrong. That has happened. All right. In Nova Scotia, we have had that happen in Canada, where across the board, pensioners experienced a an across the board reduction in their benefits, and it had to be restructured. So that is not new. And at some point, the, but the it's politically gap. intractable, right? I mean, look, what's it the is. root of this? The root of this is the absurdity of a six and a half percent expected return with treasuries at half percent, right? I mean, that's the elephant of the room we didn't even address. Correct. The, the, Insane PE valuations and all that fun stuff, right? The, yeah, the the expected premium is three times higher than is probable. So, you know, that's that's the major problem, and and so you could either tell your stakeholders your board of directors and and you know indirectly the pensioners that are relying on this future stream of income that calpers is is going to purport to produce that they need to reduce their expectations about what the income that you're going to is going to be produced from this portfolio or the state is going to have to raise taxes in order to make these pensions whole or some other gap needs to be filled or you carry on this facade, facade this circus, right? That we're just going to lever up in order to be able to make our return targets. What everybody knows, I'm sure all of the internal discussions in the CIO office at CalPERS are all, listen, guys, I know we're never going to make these returns, but we've got to make a show of it because our political <laughs> stakeholders, our political stakeholders require it and the public will not tolerate any of the other options that are available to us.
So, so I think in close, I think you asked what, uh, what do we want the takeaway to be? I, I think the takeaway, like always, is it's, it's, we like to paint these things as one or the other, right? But the truth is that it is all gray. Um, is this a tool that is good or bad? It's neither. It can be really, really good. It can be really, really bad. So and it's both? It's it. It is, depending <laughs> on the person, depending on how you're implementing it, right? This is, are you going to, are you going to no, use I'm just it? saying it's both. It's not neither. You know, yeah. I know. Right. Sorry, I was thinking. No, it's proving it. Yes. I know English is a second language. I'm sorry. Out in, front of, <laughs> in front of the thousands of live listeners right now. So we're, we're being asked if we were all supposed to wear blue today. Yeah, we were all supposed to wear blue, and Jason didn't get the memo. No, that's no. dark blue. He can't tell. That's dark. <laughs> it's true. That's true. There is no black in the in actual fact in the color. Um, by the way, I want to I want to shout out to Michael Green, who clearly was responsible for for um, sparking a lot of the the directions we went in this uh, discussion. And Mike, you're uh, front and center in terms of someone who's targeted to be on this this show. So yeah, um, we got some guests scheduled for the next couple of weeks, but we're going to have to have you on sometime in July if you're available. We'd love that. So um, please continue chiming in and prompting um, hard points of discussion in the meantime. Appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, we had Corey we have poking that. and prodding last week and, and Mike this week, and we're really grateful for the people that are um, making make our life difficult. Fantastic. Well, it makes for good discussion. Totally. Absolutely. 100%. This is not about having an easy discussion. This is the discussion that is had over happy hour um, in places of of, uh, financial centers where you sit and talk at the end of the end of the week about very difficult topics and how are we going to handle it? What, what are the changing dynamics? I mean, Mike is Mike green is at a, a spectacular insight into the changing dynamics of market driven markets driven by passive investing and there's some great counterpoints out there to that. And so it, it is, this yeah, we is, we revel in the hard discussions because that's where the opportunity for advancement for all of us is. Exactly. And, uh, so I, I, think I actually have, have um, uh, restrained myself from talking about risk parity and the blame that it gets in all this. Um, <laughs> I, I have the article up that we were, I have everything in place, but I actually want to save that for Mike. See how he can. Why he just keeps on saying it's all about risk parities and ball targeting. We'll, we'll get you on, Mikey. And um, and I think next week, though, we have, unlike normal riffs, we do have a set uh, topic for next week, right? Is, it, is that right? Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about, about um, uh, Bitcoin. Um, we have a we have a pretty crypto in general, right? Crypto in general. And, yeah. and, and you know, in Canada, Canada has been very much like. Um, uh, yeah, right. Robin Hood's taking the blame right now. It's true. There's been some stories that are very sad in Robin Hood too about some some traders that have had some pretty significant outcomes on the negative side that have caused some angst. Um, but getting back to um, the point, Canada was the first to evolve and develop an ETF, an exchange traded fund. Um, Canada's also been on the leading edge of developing a an exchange traded closed end fund for a Bitcoin trust. And a um, our head of futures trading moved on from our firm, on from Resolve to 3IQ to develop that product. So we're going to have him on um, next week. And we're going to talk about crypto. Is it the new digital gold? How is it impacted in the, in the digital economy? 
Um, it, you know, very interesting topic. You have people like Paul Tudor Jones talking about a one percent allocation being a being a very smart allocation. If it goes wrong, you're not hurt too much. But if it, it is the next coming, then you have an exposure that could have have some significant impact in your portfolio. So we want to talk about all of the the, the good, the bad, and the ugly with respect to that. And Sean has been instrumental in architecting a product. Um, that is traded on exchange. It's prospectus based, so it can be offered to the broad public. And uh, and so this is a very interesting topic. And I will also say that Andrew Miller's podcast that we were talking about today uh, will be live shortly too. So we talked about that earlier today. That's going to be live on the Resolve site. And I think there's some interesting. That was topics. excellent, by the way. Yeah. As usual, Andrew, um, just tremendous insight. We covered, oh God, um, a dozen different topics, all of which I think are timely and relevant and where Andrew had a very uh, divergent opinion, I think from, from common views. So highly recommend people tune into that. Probably, probably dropping sometime like, early next week. Share and subscribe, hit that little <laughs> bell. So you don't miss a single episode. I'm glad you're responsible for saying that. <laughs> hey, topics we missed today. I wanted to talk about our experience with China. And the op- and how China has been trying to get more speculators into their futures market oh, yeah, yeah. in order to make the efficiency of that market. Uh, that was a topic that that I think listeners would be very keen to hear about. I don't know, you know, we've got people that we can bring into that conversation who who would be able to yeah, add a lot of cover to that, and I think it would be great guests. That's a really good point. Okay, so I think that's something interesting for down the road. Yep. All right, gents, getting this thing All cut, right. family. Thanks everyone tuned in and asked questions and engaged. That was great. Thanks guys. Thanks all. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.